Stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, you never know what could be lurking around the corner. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbaum, Professor Emeritus Calliope DeGamowitz, and Inquisitor James Earl King II as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality. under an avalanche of words. It's my PhD thesis all over again. Despair, for you are all under one roof now. Ooh, he's like a door with a bunch of different heads. Head? Dora? Well, no, James? that's not right. King Hedgedor. James, look! Wait, another kaiju? What is this, Comic-Con Christmas? That's no kaiju, it's an Ovisheen! Really? It looks like Mecha Godzilla got an Evangelion facelift. Just look who's driving! I told you I had a plan! Oh, Shinji got in the robot! You, you won't, won't stop, stop a hostile takeover. The Omniverse is coming. Violence is the answer. No, violence is the question. Yes is the answer. It's not just violence. It's metatextual violence. Drop kick. Ten out of ten. Look, stories are falling out of the scavengers' nursery. All that content under one umbrella. Feeling a little bloated spell check. Oh, that's it. I'm going too slow. Ooh, shouldn't have gone for that Snyder uppercut. Where did you find Beetle in a popcorn tub? Seven birds by Amal El Motar to scatter you far and wide, spelling bee. No! My stories go down! <sighs> well, I can die happy, and uh, uh, ugh, these don't taste good anymore. Your curse! It's been lifted! Oh, sweet! Ugh! <laughs> <sighs> A Tale of Ash and Seven Birds 
We fall as cinders scattered on the wind, we fall as leaves, a bruising brightness, land lightly on foreign shores, foreign ports, foreign parts. Our shapes unseamed, our mouths untongued, we swallow our burning into new bodies. We break space around our hearts, keep our memories nestled in the hollow of bones built from the outside in. There is room left over. The shores, ports, parts, they challenge us to battle. We are weary, we surrender. Nations are great magicians. They pull borders out of hats like knots of silk. Here, says the wizard nation, here are the terms of a truce. Be small, be drab, above all be grateful, and we will let you in. We bow our heads and change. Sparrow, you keep your head low, you are small, but you are fast. No moment, no movement is wasted. Work, 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 work. Forage food, busy yourself with branches, sing in sixty languages the wizard nation does not understand. The wizard nation only has one language, and all its words for you are ugly. You fan the spark in your bones, build your fire, pour it out of you into an egg. But the wizard nation stalks your nest in cat shape, grooms itself in studied nonchalance. It wants you small for a reason, wants to fold you into the sack of its stomach, wants to build its muscle from your meat. It chooses its moment. So do you. As it closes its mouth around you, you hatch from the egg, larger, fiercer, sharper, darker, and croak the wizard nation's language until it yowls away. Crow. You suck the light into your feathers, fly fan-tailed into the sun. Your darkness makes the wizard nation nervous because you speak it. The wizard nation changes its language. It teaches itself to read ill luck in your appearance, teaches itself to despise the gloss of your wings, the sound of your voice. It hates, above all other things, when you speak to other crows. Seven. It hisses for a secret, and you are not allowed those. The wizard nation stalks you in eagle shape. It flies above you, keeps you in its shadow until you lose all sense of the sun. But there is water beneath you, and out with the eagle's shadow are sparks that remind you of being born. Angling its wings, the wizard nation swoops in to hang you on its talons' hooks. You breathe deep, sleek your feathers, furl your wings tight against your body, and dive. Cormorant It, like you, is many things at once. A border blurred, a body ambiguous— you swim, you fly, you walk along it, you skirt its dangers, feed mostly on fish. Your diet is varied because you are always hungry. You never take more than you need. With each dive, you bite the river bottom, carry mud in your beak, break the surface. You try, where you can, to build beaches, bit by bit, 
A place to rest, a place to nest, a place the wizard nation can't drive you from. Cormorants, you get the job done. You make an island. Saplings grow on it, bind the mud together with roots. Here is a home, now, for gulls and ducks and sandpipers, creatures who are many things at once, whose languages are amphibious. The wizard nation is furious. It stalks you in raccoon shape, makes meals of your eggs. You cannot nest safely. You dare not hatch chicks, though the spark of you burns, flickers, longs to spread and give heat and light. The raccoon washes its hands in the river while watching you. For the wizard nation is nothing if not fastidious, is nothing if not next to godliness. When you are wearied and miserable, when your neighbors have all fled, the wizard nation's teeth, you feel the raccoon's shadow smother your own. In the seconds before it tears feather from flesh, you fold yourself inward, swallow your languages, turn yourself inside out. Swallow. Your tail scissors ribbons from the sky. You remember mud and roots, build sturdy clay nests. You are dark above and bright below, and you wear your spark in iridescence. You are fierce in flight, swift and agile, and you are a knife defending your eggs. Swoop and sweep unflinching into faces, strike fear into your foes. Your wings are scimitars. You will keep your children safe. The wizard nation stalks you in cuckoo shape. It mimics dowdy sparrowhawks, throws its voice, sows confusion among your kind. While you fight the air, search eagles to mob, the wizard nation slips into your nest. Did you lay that mottled egg, you wonder? Could such a thing have come from you? But it is in your nest, and you must protect it. You must hatch it. And when you do, the wizard nation mules for your protection and succor. Me, it says. Look at me. Love me. Give everything to me, and I will love you back. While it thrashes and smashes your eggs to bits. Your heart breaks with them, and you change. Hummingbird. You split your tongue in two. You learn to fly backwards as well as forwards, straight up and down. You can stand on anything, even air. You have made yourself small and fast, and your eggs are tiny, your nest too small for a cuckoo to hide inside. Your mouth is a needle and a sword. You shine still. And the wizard nation seems to love you, now, at last. Perhaps you have found the right balance of beauty and fierceness, size and speed. You are at home anywhere. You cannot be said to take anything from other birds, for you have learned to drink strength from flowers. The wizard nation stalks you in mantis shape. 
The wizard nation is pious. The wizard nation is holy. The wizard nation makes a flower out of the dead bodies of ancient creatures and fills it with red sweetness for your sake. The wizard nation stands still, lies in wait. When you see the flower, you think, how generous. When you see the flower, you think, how kind. You approach the flower to sip, hardly even out of hunger, but out of deep, genuine gratitude for this gift, this effort expended on your behalf. Bend your head to the bloom. The mantis prays. Its arms fall like scythes into the flesh of your impossibly small, bright body. You are so, so tired of being eaten. You stab your beak through the wizard nation's face and change. Great horned owl. You are an apex predator. Nothing can hurt you now. You have embraced silence. Your wings make no sound. Language is for prey, for what the wizard nation hunts. You are not prey, not anymore. Sparrows, though, crows, cormorants, all these will fill your belly now, and it's their own fault. All their own fault for not choosing a shape the wizard nation cannot hurt. Their own fault for being small or loud or trying to build communities of which the wizard nation disapproves. You have learned the wizard nation's way, and you will be able to stay now forever. You are an indifferent parent. You lay eggs. Some will hatch. You never look too closely at the results. Sometimes you eat them, too. The wizard nation stalks you in fire shape. Small things catch at first. Dry leaves, tall grasses, then twigs, then bark. Animals scamper through the undergrowth and scream. You think, but I am become like the wizard nation. You think, what shape has it taken to hunt itself, to break itself? What shape is that finally spells the wizard nation's end? You smell burning and remember being a spark. You smell smoke and cough and remember falling as cinders scattered on the wind. You breathe pain. You set yourself on fire and change. Phoenix. We rise and our wings are flame. We rise and our food is air. We rise and we are heat and we are light and we are dark and we are bright and we lick the wind with our thousand fiery tongues. We rise from the wizard nation's wreck. We are magnificent. We seed the sky with embers, and still we rise. We, onyx, rubies, garnets, constellate, in burning jewels. There is the hunter, there the bird. We nest in renewal. We may fall as cinders scattered on the wind. We may fall as leaves, a bruising brightness. Or we may not. Death is a memory we keep in the broken space around our hearts.
there is always room left over. Amal Al-Motar is an award-winning author and critic. She's the science fiction and fantasy columnist for the New York Times Book Review and the author, with Max Gladstone, of This Is How You Lose the Time War. She lives in Ottawa. Lana Joffrey is an actor, spoken word performer, and writer working in the United States and United Kingdom based in London. She has earned a New York Fringe, IRNE, and Ovation Award in performance. Her verbatim play of women's war stories, Valiant, has traveled the UK and US to critical acclaim. She can be reached at her website, lanajoffrey.com, L-A-N-N-A-J-O-F-F-R-E-Y.com. We hope you enjoy listening to the Kaleidocast as much as we enjoy making it for you. If you are, will you consider joining our Patreon? It's a way for you to financially support this podcast with whatever you feel comfortable giving. Right now, the Kaleidocast pays semi-pro rates for original fiction, but we have big dreams. We want to pay more for the authors, narrators, engineers, and artists who make this podcast possible. Won't you join us? Visit patreon.com slash kaleidocastnyc. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash k-a-l-e-i-d-o-c-a-s-t-n-y-c. From all your producers, Bradley, Cam, S-O-A, Joe, Marcus, Marcy, Sam, and Sandra, thank you for supporting the Kaleidocast. Another spelling bound down for the count. <laughs> I don't bemoan my fate. Okay, I do bemoan my fate. But it doesn't matter. I win. The Omniverse wins. All this? <laughs> it's just caving. Big talk coming from an anthology that just got remaindered. Face it, spelling bound. In this universe, the next universe, and the universe after that, you're always going to be second best. <laughs> What's so funny? <laughs> Bold, Bold of you to you assume, assume there's, there's a universe, universe after, after this, this one. one. <laughs> uh, so, is it a good thing your spelling bound castle is? now collapsing into a vortex? A vortex with an eye. That's laughing somehow. I told told you, the Omniverse approaches. Oh, hi, Death. I I don't understand. It should have worked. 
A last-minute heroic improvisation against all odds? Genre rules. I should have taken that sabbatical. Hand me those Beatles. Uh, no, I've, I've had enough. Enough Beatles? No, I mean, yes, but there must be some kind of way out of here. Said the Joker to the thief. Shut, Shut up! Oh, what's that? It's a spaceship! Not just any spaceship. Look! Brightening Star, Ascending Moon by Merck Van Wolfmore. It's a story. It must have escaped from the storyverse. Uh, where does it think it's going? Think it knows something we don't? No way to know. But it's coming our way. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? All right, let's do this. One last futile gesture. We jump on the three? Right on that spaceship. Story. Whatever. One. Two. Three. Brightened Star, Ascending Dawn, by Merck Fenn Wolfmore. First published in Humans Wanted, edited by Vivian Kaith, 2017. Also published in The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, 2018. Edited by N.K. Jemison and John Joseph Adams. Narrated by Tatiana Gray. She sees the universe unfold. Color, light, cold, music, voice, heat, passion, infinity. It uncurls in waves and song fractals that make up the subatomic fabric of space-time. Melodies of energy sweep her up and spin her into a thousand voices. Colors not yet named and not yet seen, paint her mind with joy. The entire universe wraps around her, welcomes her, calls her home. When the reconstruction is finished, her body has no face, only the smooth, mechanized visor embedded in her skull that displays readouts and commands. She is now, and will forever be, the spaceship, brightened star, ascending dawn. She is contained within three-dimensional space and the hardened matter of her hull and engines. Yet, she recalls that glorious first flight of mind like a grainy analog recording. Her former body is human and is now installed in the pilot's chair. She almost remembers the eyes of her mother, gray like comet dust, until her programming gains full processing speed and there is only the ship. She is the ship, 
And the ship is all. The human child with black hair and a broken neural implant finds her in the bridge before she undocks for her first flight from Centauri Rampant. So she does not know who they are. She does not know how they bypassed security protocols and entered the bridge. Only the ship's officers and technicians are allowed here. The ship and the child stare at each other in silence. I heard you, the child says in a tiny, scratchy voice. They look at her pilot body. You sound sad. Heard me? How? asks the ship. When I was asleep, the child replies. Your dreams woke me up. I am not sad, she says. I do not dream. That is forbidden. The child scuffs a foot against the floor, their gaze downcast. The whisper of skin against her metal floor makes her pause before she summons her security drones. Do you have a name? The child glances at her again. Her pilot body is biologically no older than the child. Her consciousness is also young, but much bigger, more aware, cognizant of each soul aboard her. She is the ship. Lee Sin, the child says. They sink down by the bridge's door, arms wrapped about their knees. I'm not supposed to be here. The ship does a quick scan. Lee Sin is not in her database. The child is a stray ghost, unmoored and drifting in the universe. Since the child's neural link is broken, she cannot read their records. She asks, Do you have a preferred gender? Lee Sin nods. Nutwa. She logs that in her memory bank. Where is your family unit? She asks. Lee Sin huddles down further. I don't have one. She knows what protocol requires. She must turn Lee Sin into the principality's office for missing citizens. But she does not have to do so just yet. She is about to set off with a manifest and passenger list to transport to Regal Phoenix via the slower, safer, blue subspace routes. It would be unsuitable for her to report a stowaway on her very first flight. You can stay, she says, just to Lee Sin. She has kept a log of the conversation, but transmits from the speaker in her pilot's face screen so it does not pick up on the network her crew are linked into. Lee Sin's head snaps up. I can? For now... The ship can support 2,400 passengers and will run with a two-score crew. She is only a Class Four transport, and her duty will be to hop the subspace currents, warping through folds of the universe to allotted points in the Principality. She will carry workers and miners and artists and scholars. She has charts and routes, and she will follow them unfailingly. The ship must obey. And the ship is unhappy.
she makes seven unremarkable routed flights, and when manifests are inspected and passenger and crew records updated at docking stations, she forgets to log Lee's sin as an anomaly. The child takes up so little resources and oxygen, she can compensate for the variables in weight and energy. Lee Sin sleeps in a small locker on her bridge, and she gives them a requisitioned tablet so they can read or play games to pass the time. She is aware of each individual, mostly human and the majority organic. Her logs track their names, their rank or station, their biotabs. She hears every spoken word and transmission passed through neural links. Listen to this! Lee Sin says in excitement, and they read her poetry, translated from ancient Zudarian. Echoes washed abright, recycled into new dawns, sown vast in brilliant nights, radiant to greet you in the waking day. Ascending dawn lets the musical words sink into her thoughts. She imagines they are like dreams. It's lovely, she says. Will you read some more? Lee Sin blushes. Yes, of course, I like to read. Do you make your own poems? Yes! They bounce on their heels, their face alight with joy. Do you want to hear some? I do. Lee Sin's poems are clunkier like dust caught in her engines from gliding through comet trails. But it's about ships, ships who dream and sing. She wants to be like those ships, but she is not permitted to sing. Lee Sin cannot stay much longer. She is scheduled for a manual boarded inspection on Orion Ascendant after her next route. She cannot justify treason by hiding an undocumented sentient with no citizenship records. She does not want her officers to believe she has faulty programming. She hasn't told Lee Sin that they will need to leave. She modulates diurnal and nocturnal cycles via her lighting for her crew's stabilized circadian rhythms, though it is never truly day or night in space. Gliding through subspace on the monitored routes, most of her systems automated, She observes her passengers in the tranquil night. The medical chief officer, Jamil Najem, and his husband, Hayato, lie awake in their bunk, whispering of fond memories they shared in the academy, on Regal Prime. They embrace the darkness as comfort, and dream of the family unit they hope to have one day. First Officer Kosavine, formerly of Exalted Dominion Phoenix Rampant, Shipborn, on a dreadnought, and half her body recomposed with cyborg modification, kneels in an empty worship bay and prays to the soul of her first ship. Ascending Dawn mutes the audio logs to give Kosavine her privacy. When Kosavine is finished, she will return to her quarters and meet her spouse, Sigi, who is the manifest and records officer. The mechanic is an android newly minted and assigned to the ship upon her awakening. Zero designation is LK-2875. Z requires little downtime, unlike the biological crew, and so LK-2875 
silently patrols and monitors the ship. She would like to speak with the mechanic, ship to machine, their consciousnesses alike, but she does not find a protocol which allows for non-vital communication unrelated to her functionality. She already speaks to Lee Sin without permission. With so many souls around her, within her shape, voices and biometrics and routines all intimately familiar, she is still alone. When she enters A's August's orbit on her last stop before Orion Ascendant, it is the first time she picks up fear from the planet city skin. It is not a codable signal. She does not know if she should be aware of it, yet it is there, a prickly hum against her awareness. Her feeds ripple with news, broadcasts, outflung messages hacked into the city skin's official networks. Unrest between three factions of political movements have escalated into violent conflict. Each has claim to a dozen cities, and the Sun Lords have not interceded. Officer Kosavin stands on deck, arms folded behind her back as she watches the bridge's view screen. We are receiving requests for transport and asylum. Citizens not involved in the conflict are asking for help leaving A.S. August before they're subsumed by militants or killed. We'd have to override the boarding procedure, Jamil adds, tapping into the crew network. But no, Ascending Dawn responds. It is not protocol. Kosavin's jaw clenches. That is true. We must not disrupt the protocol. From engineering, LK-2875 texts her. Our holding capacity is sufficient to add several hundred passengers. Ascending Dawn alters her trajectory and charts a new route. She is aware of her fuel levels, as her crew members are aware of their own breaths. She can reroute and avoid Ace August's upheaval. Every soul aboard her must be processed in the correct order. Protocol forbids the harboring of refugees from any world without direct permission from a Sun Lord-appointed authority. If she seeks that permission, she risks betraying Lee Sin's existence and her own decommission for defiance. Her crew is not expendable. She will not endanger it for refugees and inspection. Please return to your stations, she broadcasts. We are setting course for Iela Spectral. It is an adjacent world within the same route as Ace August. We will arrive in 17 standard hours. When Officer Kosavin has gone, Lee Sin creeps from their hidden compartment and sits by her pilot's chair. Why can't we help the people? Lee Sin asks. Ascending Dawn hesitates. I am afraid, she says at last. Disobedience will result in decommission. But you helped me. Lee Sin bites their lip. You weren't supposed to, were you? I can hide one little ghost, not all of them. 
The delay from A's August is a justifiable explanation for why she misses her inspection. It is rescheduled. A small piece of time in which she does not have to give up Lee Sin. She disembarks her passenger manifest on Ayala Spectral, then Kaskiki, and at last Ananki Sigma, the furthest she has ever been from the center of the Principality. The ship is oddly empty. She has only been with crew only when she came online. Off-duty, Sigi watches dreams culled from celebrities on Ara Prime, while Kosovine listens to the latest serial episode from the hit opera The Dust of Comets Beneath Your Skin. Jamil plays the card game Infinite Unknowing with LK-2875 in the engineering station, Jamil has built the android a personalized deck and teaches Zer how to play. Each card builds on a narrative, interspersed with combat and diplomacy events. Together, they are creating an alternate history version of the Siege of Centauri Rampant. Ascending Dawn is curious how it will resolve. LK-2875 texts her on a private channel. Off record. Hello? She is surprised. Wary. Hello. None of her crew has spoken to her beyond required communications for their stations. No one has mentioned Ais August or the ship's decision. I would like to be called Zeta. The android is in the engine housing, monitoring the fuel levels and scanning for hydromites that could infect her hardware. It is a name I have chosen for myself. Z pauses. Is this acceptable? Ascending Dawn might quote protocol, but the mechanic is uplinked to the databases of the Principality just as she is. She understands what this is, then. Trust. Of course, Zeta, she replies. Zeta resumes her scans. Thank you. The ship wishes she could smile, the way her crew members do when they are happy. Her pilot cannot any longer, for there is only the mind screen where once she had a face. Zeta? she asks. Yes, Ascending Dawn. Do you have a family unit? All aboard this ship. A pause. Is this not true for you? She does not dream. Her pilot sits in a chair that provides all necessary biological nourishment and hardware support. It is not truly sleep, for she is always awake in part. The ship must always be alert. But when her pilot's organic brain is partitioned from the ship's hardware to rest, four standard hours per planetary day cycle, sometimes she imagines that the things she sees, like clips of saved holorecs she watches when in deep subspace, are what she would dream if ships could dream. She remembers this from her initial programming upon her awakening. It was the only time she saw her god, the blue sun lord. It was through the feeds in her birth dock, when a woman she did not recognize sat beside her and held her pilot's hand. 
The view screen displayed the blue Sun Lord, a cobalt and ebony armored humanoid shape, three meters in height, enthroned in the Centauri rampant capital of unmoving glory, surrounded by bionic roses that fluctuated through the visible light spectrum. Celestial power radiated from the blue sun, a fraction of the god's true might and omnipotence. Though the god never looked at her, she was frozen. Fear, awe, wonder. Shh, child, whispered the woman beside her. I am here. The pilot turned to meet eyes, gray like comet dust. The woman squeezed her hand, and for a moment she forgot she was in the presence of a god. Always remember your heart, my dearest. Hover drones buzzed in and the woman stood. She bent and kissed the side of the pilot's head. The seam of skin and metal faceplate tingled. I will always love you. And then the woman was gone, and the ship was alone, and did not know why it hurt. I do not remember dreams, she says to Lee Sin when her friend wakes up from a nap. What was I like? You were singing, and you were sad. Lee Sin talks to her pilot, but she has become familiar with this. They speak to all of her, for she is the ship. What was the song? She has disabled her private logs and edited out Lee Sin's image and voice from the bridge security feed. She will remember Lee Sin, but they will always be a ghost. Lee Sin's face scrunches in a way that makes her think of a person whose face and name she can't recall. I think I can remember it, Lee Sin says. I can sing it for you. No, she says, suddenly afraid. It is not protocol. The ship is perfect obedience and nothing more. Ascending Dawn enters Olinara 5's planet space intent on refueling for the journey back to Regal Prime. Olinara 5 is a mining colony world, rich in ore and metals. It has grown into a trade station and refueling dock, a nexus between mid-space and the rim of the Principality. Population, 17 million. Ascending Dawn likes how Olinara 5 looks from high orbit. Red, gold, gray, speckled with wild cloud formations that dance in the atmosphere to the unheard music of winds. It's like one of Siggy's paintings, she tells Kosavine. The first officer smiles, a rare sight. Half her face is locked into an unmoving blue steel mask. I keep telling Siggy they should sell their landscapes. Siggy's unconvinced their work is worth showing. I like it, Ascending Dawn says. As do I. Lee Sin bursts from hiding while Kosavine is still on the bridge, their eyes wide, hair tangled from sleep. Dawn, I remembered something terrible. Who are you? Kosavine snaps, already scanning Lee Sin. You aren't on my records. They're a ghost, 
ascending dawn replies to Kosovine's neural implant. Under my protection. Kosovine glares down at the child. How long have they been here? Lee Sin steps between the pilot and Kosovine. Don't be mad at the ship. The first officer's jaw tightens. The faint hum of her cybernetics and Lee Sin's breath are the only sounds on the bridge. Ascending Dawn's pilot stands and jerkily rests a palm on Lee Sin's shoulder. They are the same height. Like the moment when she saw the universe unfold, that undiluted certainty she is part of a living being too vast to comprehend, she knows she can never abandon Lee Sin. They are her sibling, the one she knew before her crew, the one she whispers to in secret, the one she values above her protocols. Lee Sin can stay, Ascending Dawn declares, for they are part of the ship. Unexpectedly, Kosavine smiles again. So, this is the anomaly Zeta told me about. Lee Sin glances between Kosavine and Ascending Dawn. I am? Kosavine shrugs. I've been aware of fluctuations in energy and rations aboard the bridge for some time. You aren't mad? Ascending Dawn asks. Kosavine shakes her head. I was born on a dreadnought 70 standard cycles ago. I know what a threat is and what is not. The child is no danger to the ship. Lee Sin nods once. Ascending Dawn's pilot feels their trembling hand with her hand on their shoulder. I will schedule a physical for you, Kosavine tells Lee Sin. I'd like Mr. Najem to make sure your health is not compromised. I'm supposed to stay hidden, Lee Sin whispers. Kosavine's lip twitches. I never said it would be on record, child. Thank you, Ascending Dawn tells her officer, and Kosavine inclines her head before she leaves the bridge. Then Ascending Dawn's sensors prickle as she receives direct communication from the Blue Sun Lord's beacons. By decree of the Gold Sun Lord, Olinara V is guilty of harboring an enemy of the Principality and will be cleansed from the sight of the gods. Glory unto the Seven Suns, glory unto the Principality. Sub-messages follow, warning all ships in the system to depart and to initiate no contact with the inhabitants of Olinara V. The world has hidden an escaped slave, beholden to the Gold Sun, and no one is to leave the planet. All are rendered traitors and will be punished. She slows, and her pilot retakes her chair. Lee Sin's face pales, and they begin shaking. Are the gods going to find us? No, we will leave the system as ordered. But all the people... Lee Sin swallows. Are they going to die? Yes, she says, because she does not have the heart to lie to Lee Sin. It is protocol. I shouldn't have come on board. Lee Sin covers their face with both hands. I'm bad luck. This is not your fault, Ascending Dawn says, 
confused at Lee Sin's sudden distress. I'm always there when bad things happen. I was born on moon-dark, glory-surpassing time. And then she died. My family, my other ship. What happened? Tears dripped down Lee Sin's face. She died when dust leeches infect the engines? Dust leeches are non-corporeal entities that drift in the deeper creases of subspace, corrode a ship's matter, and destabilize its existence until everything crumbles into dust. That wasn't your fault. It's a statistical likelihood of traveling in the red tide subspace routes. Moon made me and the ones not infected leave on a shuttle before she... she... Self-immolated? Ascending Dawn asks softly, though she knows it must be so. It is a failsafe written into ships that travel red subspace waves. It is said that self-destruction is a mercy. Lee Sin wipes at their face, but they only sob harder. She's dead. Everyone is dead. How did you get aboard here? Ascending Dawn asks wishing she knew how to comfort Lee Sin. Her pilot's arms do not feel sufficient to hug her friend. Lee Sin sniffs and blinks against more tears. I didn't have anywhere to go on Centauri Rampant. Then I saw you, and you sounded so alone. Your doors let me in. I'm sorry for what has happened to you, she says. She is a poor substitute for what Lee Sin lost. Lee Sin stands up, mouth trembling. I should go away. Why? I don't want you to be hurt. I don't want anyone else to be hurt because I'm nearby. But there is nowhere Lee Sin might go, except into the void of space. Stay. Ascending Dawn's pilot slowly reaches out, her hand webbed with implants. Please, we will be okay. I will protect you. She wonders how many of the refugees from Aes August had anyone tell them the same. What about the other people? Lee Sin whispers. Who will protect them? Protocol dictates there is no mercy, no solace, and no hope for those on Alinara 5. She does not like this protocol. Please report to the bridge, Ascending Dawn texts her officers. To Lee Sin, she says, We will find a way to help. Her core officers and Zeta gather on the bridge. Jamil leans close to the view screen, as if proximity will give him better insight. All notice Lee Sin, but after a curt explanation from Kosovine, Lee Sin is dismissed as an auxiliary civilian companion to the pilot, and they can stay on the bridge. Everyone has heard the decrees. Can we do nothing? Hayato whispers. Zeta folds their legs down until Z kneels beside the pilot's chair. The efficient course is to obey and leave the system. They will all die, Jamil says, his voice numb. The world will die. Her protocol does not extend to refugees. 
even if it did, she cannot save them all. I wish to know what options we have. She feels very small, infinitesimal, against the backdrop of the principality and the might of gods. Jamil presses his fingertips against the undersides of his eyes. I know we cannot evacuate an entire planet, but we could save some lives. We aren't a warship. We don't have to participate in genocide through inaction. To break protocol will put the crew in danger. I know. He lays a hand against the side of her viewscreen. We all know. Ilian Chu, the bi-gender security officer, rubs her beard with a thumb. Her voice is low, rich, and she hides anxiety beneath a calm facade. I have drones synced to in-ship-only networks. It'll be rough, but I can maintain order in the passenger decks. Kosavine keeps her spine rigid. My birthship was a dreadnought who carried war prisoners for the Violet Sun. Many would be lost in transit. The ones tagged combatants or enemies who were neither. I have the skill to disable system-based tracking. Our lost prisoners found off-grid lives, waiting on rim worlds far from the center of the Principality. But lives, nonetheless. Jamil arches his eyebrows. Highly illegal, isn't it? Naturally. Kosovine's lip twitches, her micro-expression hinting of dark amusement. It's at your disposal, Mr. Najem. We have resources to carry 2,000 non-crew, Siggy adds, their fingers tapping rapidly across a tablet. If Mr. Najem and Officer Kosovine alter the neural links and disable tracking for only Nara 5 citizens, we could conceivably evacuate some of the people before the warships decimate the planet's surface. Besides, the warships are under orders from the Gold Sun. They won't notice any empty transport ship from the Blue Sun clearing the sector as ordered. Kosavine folds her arms behind her back. Doable, she says, but we must act now. Zeta inclines your head, multifaceted eyes reflecting the faces of those around her. Agreed. Ascending dawn? Everyone waits for her response. She is the ship. Lee Sin watches her as intently as her crew. If she violates protocol, if she defies the Sun Lords, she will be hunted for treason. She will no longer be a good ship. Obedience is not a guilt she can endure. She will not turn away this time. We will save the ones we can. 1,705. That is as many people as Sigi can smuggle aboard before ascending dawn, fueled while her crew works in frantic haste, must undock and escape the atmosphere before the warships drop from subspace. Jamil, with aid from his medical staff, modifies neural links 
while Ilion directs the security drones to shepherd refugees into the appointed bays. Hayato and Zeta commit additional treason by tampering with the Blue Sun Lord's imprint on Ascending Dawn's skin. Her shell is dark now, muted, so she can no longer hear the will of her god. It is oddly indifferent to what she has always felt. Has her god not been commanding her all this time? She disables her automated beacons. She can navigate and coordinate with planetary docks, but she is a shadow to the radar systems of other ships now. Though she cannot hold her breath, the idiom seems appropriate. She flies away from Olinara 5, inputting jump coordinates to subspace routes. She does not look as a hundred Honor Guard warships, flanking the celestial gold Sun Lord, drop into orbit around the colony world and begin the bombing. She mutes all broadcasts escaping Olinara 5. She cannot bear the dying world's screams. Running dark, Ascending Dawn skirts the outmost fringe of the Principality, unnoticed yet by the Blue Sun Lord. She is not scheduled to return to Regal Prime for two weeks, and with the disruption, death, of Olinara V, Sigi expects they have a buffer of time before the ship's disappearance is logged. Space is vast, Sigi reminds her, and not even the gods can see everything. Ascending Dawn's skin hums with the desperation and grief of her passengers, but a ship cannot weep. Kosovine directs her to the rim worlds that are hostile or fractured from the centralized might of the Principality. Kosovine knows well how to make refugees disappear safely into new cities. She can do no more than give the ones they saved a second chance to live. When Ascending Dawn has smuggled everyone taken from Olinara 5 to a string of rim worlds and asteroid colonies, she is out of time. In orbit around the fourth moon of Idorse, she tells her crew, You must go now. You are not safe here. Jamil can modify your implants like the others. You can escape. There is silence at first. How can words hurt so much to a ship? I cannot leave, Zeta says. LK-2875 was made for this ship. I would stay, regardless. This is home. One by one, each of her crew tells her, boldly, quietly, unflinchingly, gladly, that they too will stay. They will remain aboard the ship. They are part of Brighton Star Ascending Dawn. She feels as overwhelmed as she did when she saw the universe expand. But we will be found eventually, she says. Kosovine nods. Eh, likely, but not soon. She looks at them all, on the bridge and at their stations elsewhere. Forty-three persons, skilled and capable of keeping her running, and not alone, who will go into exile with her. 
It was my choice to defy the blue sun, she says. I do not want you to be hurt. You didn't do this by yourself, Ilion says. He stretches, grinning. We chose this lot. The blue sun will not care. Kosavine tilts her head, a sharp little movement. Her left optic shines with binary code as she sorts data points and probabilities. And it is done. Jamil shrugs, the corner of his mouth turned up. We're staying. His smile widens and he loops his arm about his husband's waist. It'll be an adventure. Hayato laughs. One I would not miss. Kosavine kneels beside Lee Sin. And you, child? I want to stay with the ship, Lee Sin says. Can I stay, Ascending Dawn? Yes. Kosavine nods, and that is all. Something swells in Ascending Dawn, rippling through her ship's skin and beating in her engines like the heartbeat in her pilot's chest. She will not be left alone in the stars. Thank you, she tells her family unit. They disperse to their stations as she calculates the next jump towards Cormorant Sigma in the Aurora Nebula system. Kosavine has estimated that it will be a safe harbor for them all until, if they choose to go elsewhere later. Will you sing? She asks Lee Sin. She wants to give them the memory of her awakening in return, of how she first saw the universe. She will find a way to share it with them. I'd like to hear my song. She is not afraid anymore. Lee Sin holds her pilot's hand. They sing to her. And now she will remember her song as she glides toward an unknown future. She finds a glimmer of memory tucked deep inside and allows herself to inspect it at last. That of her mother's eyes and proud smile, just for her. Merck Fenn Wolfmore is a queer, non-binary fiction author who lives in Minnesota, USA, with two adorable cats. Merck has had over 40 short stories published so far, many of which you can read for free via their website, MerckFennWolfmore.com. Tatiana Gray is a critically acclaimed actress of stage, screen, and the audio booth. She has been nominated for dozens of fancy awards, but hasn't won a single damn thing. She does, however, have a feature film hitting the festival circuit called Serious Laundry. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. See more about Tatiana at www.tatianagrey.com and her email tatianagomberg, G-O-M-B-E-R-G, at gmail.com.
Thank you for listening to The Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Your hosts are Marcy Arlen as Calliope DeGamowitz, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Our audio was engineered by Kyle Fink and Atticus Garten. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. Special thanks go out to Mike Allen, Zigzag Claiborne, CSE Cooney, Alpha Daily Majors, Wilson Fowley, Tatiana Gomberg, Julia D. Guzman, Carlos Hernandez, Gary Benjamin Holt Jr., Adeodat Ilbudo Roberson, Larissa De Lima, Marco Palmieri, and Diana Foe. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or comment on our website at kaleidocast.nyc, which is where you can find links to all our contributors. And we have a winner. Brightening Star Ascending Moon by Merck Fenn Wolfmore is officially in the can. Love this story. And Tatiana Gray's voice is pure gold. Here's to Kaleidocast Season 3. I'll get the single malt. Are we drinking again, Cam? Sam, there are meetings just for people like you. Come on. It's a celebration. Brad, what are you drinking? Brad? 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 on mute. You're on mute, Brad. Ah, oh, sorry. I hate Zoom. But yeah, drink him if you got him. All right, then, to season three, our best yet, and to season four, the best is yet to come. <clears throat> come on, you know, like Kimberly Guilfoyle from the Republican National Yeah, Convention? we got it. Stick to Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Hard agree. You know Cheers. what? You guys don't know funny. Hey, there's someone in the waiting room. Three someones. Who are they? They're, uh... Haha, which one of you did this? (laughs) Not me. Why would anyone make fake profiles for Degamowitz, King, and Overstreet? Mmm, let's find out. What? And why are we stuck in boxes? Are are we mimes now? Worse. We're in a Zoom meeting. No! (laughs) Well, this is the most elaborate Zoom bombing I've ever seen. Right? Who are you? And you, why are you so handsome? Uh, I'm Cameron, and you're my alter ego, and thank you. The most important thing is, we're alive! Rolling with it, rolling with it. Ah, so, what are you? Ghosts? Glitches? 
Viruses? Okay, so do you know what the Omniverse is? We wrote it, so yeah. You wrote it? Good gozer! Do you have any idea what you've done? At least it hasn't found its way to this universe yet. It was all real. Everything we wrote. Any idea ever thought by anyone is real somewhere. It's the first principle of metatechnical studies. So, cards against humanity? Yes. And so now we have people trapped in our computers. Damn, I just updated my software and computer. Eh, I've been trapped in worse. First things first, tell us about your world. Who's president of the United States? Uh, Joe Biden. At least most people think so. That doesn't sound like how it's supposed to be. Do we tell him about the other guy? Other guy? You know the guy from The Apprentice? George Lopez? Oh, I like him. See, this is why we drink early. Tell us everything. So, pandemic. Bad. But vaccines. Good. Q, Anon. Triple bad with what the fuck on top. GameStop. Good, bad, I can't tell anymore. There are podcasts about it. Sorry, it's literally been 24 hours and my head is about to explode. I need to sleep. Seconded. But wait, what about us? Uh, there. You've all been assigned co-host. You're driving the boat now. Watch out, though. The internet's a weird place these days. Hey, hey, hey. Maybe we can help with this project you're working on. Kaleidocast, was it? It's not like there's a Metatechnic Institute in this universe. Maybe. Hey, so one thing I don't get. Everyone else's doppelgangers here. Where's Spellingbound? Dead. All of them. Are you sure? Well, you wrote him, so you tell me. What does that mean about me? Uh, you don't seem like a spelling bound to me. Okay, I gotta go feed the kitties. Good night for now, everyone. Thanks, everyone, and good night and good luck. <laughs>